0: Much upon a time there was an engineer, choo-choo Charlie was his name we hear. He had an engine and he sure had fun, he's good and plenty candy to make the train run.
1: Charlie says, love my good and plenty, Charlie says, really rings the bell, Charlie says.
2: This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and it's time for our Wall Street Journal story of the day. And you were listening to the uh, Good and Plenty theme song. That was my favorite snack. My parents would give it to me at the end of the week when I'd been a good boy. And I loved that song, and I loved the soft Good and Plenty. I hated the hard ones. I hated the old ones. I loved the fresh ones. And, well, today's piece is from Heidi Mitchell. And by the way, we had a great segment with her on tickling last week. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and look up the tickling segment, it was fabulous. And, well, she had the burning question column, and last week she was on with us about that tickling. This week, her latest piece of art, which foods make the best bedtime snack? And uh, for me, it was always good and plenty. Uh, that's what I love to eat right before I went to bed. It's what I love to eat any time of the day, frankly. <laughs> Heidi, is this really a burning question? That's what we want to know.
3: Uh, well, my burning question is, is licorice genetically loved or disloved? Because mm. I, don't, I could never eat those good and plenty's. But yes, my, my late night snack is ice cream, as I'm sure many Americans are.
2: Oh, you still good doing one. good and plenty's? That's a good. Oh, I still. I, I, Yes, my wife, I have a stash all over the house. Anytime is good. <laughs> Anytime is good. It's just my, you know, Ronald Reagan, as you know, it was jelly beans all the time. He had them everywhere near him. So that was his favorite right. snack, not just bedtime. Some people just have that one thing. Uh, but, uh, what, now what, what led you to this column, Heidi? What was the, what was, what was on the mind when you wrote it?
3: Well, I, like I said, I am, I'm a late night snacker. I'm really good at starving myself all day and then just I can't take it anymore and I just go for cheese and chips and, and ice cream. So I wanted to know what was what was driving that. So I spoke to Dr. David Ernest and what was super interesting about him, he's at Texas A and M Health Science Center. And he studies body clocks. But like, yeah. he had this great thought which I never really thought of, which is that, you know, we're working these ridiculous hours, right? All of us are on this twenty four hour day work schedule. And so we skip meals. Now, someone like me, I'm just trying to keep my weight in check. So I'm skipping meals. But then, you know, come the end of the day, we need a little bit of energy. And so what that snacking, he says that late night snacking isn't even really snacking. It's meal replacement for so many people. So I was curious about that. I thought that was really interesting.
2: You know, in the piece you wrote, quote, but then after 11 p.m. or midnight, you're hungry. Doctor Ernest said, "So what you're doing is not really snacking. You're replacing a normal meal with something quick and easy to consume. So this is the this is the post dinner dinner is basically what you're saying,
3: right? Exactly. And especially if your day is stretching on past you know 17 hours or so, you know you kind of need that fourth meal, or you skipped a meal and so you're just super hungry. And so you know it is sort of it's either an extra meal because you got to get more energy, or it's." the meal you skipped because you were so busy during lunch that you didn't have it. You had, and, and you're not going to cook a healthful meal late at night. Right. So you're yep. going to eat whatever's readily available. And marketing companies are very good at enticing us with packaging and delicious good and plenty.
2: And then there's always, of course, that you're not hungry at all and it's 10.30 at night and you can't go to sleep and you want to catch up with your favorite AMC series. So you go downstairs and you open up the fridge and you get everything out of there and you just keep eating until you fall asleep, which is occasionally (laughs) what I do. Isn't that the the best? best?
3: I can eat a whole pound of cheese. Standing up at the counter at, well, at eleven o'clock. We, we really terrible. cannot get
2: together. I think uh, th- th- it wouldn't end well. We'd both be in a sugar coma, <laughs> and the cops would have to haul us off in body bags. Heidi. So it sounds to me like you were wondering whether other people had this weird habit that you had. That's what it sounds like it was going on there.
3: Yes, I think that was the impetus for this week. I we'll think see how so. next week
2: so. I think so too. But so yeah, why? Do- so
3: what's interesting is that 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 craving for you know high-protein, high-fat food late at night, it's actually it's, it's fine to eat, you know, not great, but it's fine to eat that stuff during the day, but it's worse for you at night.
2: So let's get to that, though. That wh- What's the time? I mean, we're now turning this from a fun thing into a health thing, which we hope we're not scaring the <laughs> listeners, okay, because we don't want to talk about health too often, um, and this isn't a health segment, but why does eating certain foods at certain times of the day produce different results? In other words, why should we be eating some things earlier and some things Later And why maybe we shouldn't eat anything later.
3: Well, so, you know, so if you're a night owl and you're trying to push through, you know, you want some high energy food and your body, your body will take it and and it'll run with it. It really your body, you know, it's on a clock. Right. So so it wants to wake up in the morning, be filled with like all kinds of yummy, heavy foods and push you through the day. But at night it wants to start winding down and we'll wire it that way for millennia, right? Or yep. hundreds of thousands of years. So so then if you if you eat that stuff late at night, well then you're jolting your body back up to life, right? So you're you're supposed to be winding down, but instead you're like, No, I'm gonna eat that bag of delicious salt and vinegar chips and now your body's like, Oh right, it's time to wake up. So then you're alert, and your body, all the stuff goes into your metabolism goes into action. All the stuff happens internally, and um, and it's just not good for your body clock. You're totally messing with yourself.
2: Yep, yep. And by the way, it says here that maybe later at night you might want to think about eating things like cherries or bananas. Or a pineapple. And I can only tell you this doesn't work for me because what I do is I get the, I get that two pound bag of Bing cherries and I wipe them out, and right. then I'm on a raging sugar high at like two in the morning. But you know, moder- I guess moderation is the key to everything. Heidi, what's your broad takeaway from researching bedtime snacking? What's the relationship between how we eat and how we sleep?
3: Well, you know, you sh- you should stop eating you know, about eight o'clock. But what I thought was super interesting was that what you eat like 12 hours before has an impact on what you're, what happens to you later on. So this, this doctor, I think this is pretty fun. He said, if you eat something high in omega threes, like salmon, for example, um, at, say at lunch, eat that at lunch. And then at night you go for your mad men, binge fest, tub of ben and jerry's you might be okay you might be canceling out the bad fat protein stuff that's in all the ice cream right and instead it's all going to be okay because we eat that salmon at lunch only if you indulge occasionally you can't live your life this way every day
2: yep well heidi we always appreciate what you write at the wall street journal And which foods make the best bedtime snack? This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to our website. Better still, go to the Wall Street Journal and catch the article. Thanks so much for joining us, Heidi. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after this. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored, as always, by the great folks at Job Creators Network, fighting hard for public policies that help small businesses turn into big ones. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings the story of someone not too far away from our studio here in Oxford, Mississippi, in a small town of 11,000 people called West Point.
4: Throughout almost all of human
5: history, our lives looked like this. People spent a lot of their time, half their time maybe, getting food for the family. And then over time, with mechanization and all that, it just became less and less.
4: And as they say, time is money. And thankfully for us, food today is more of a function of money than time. It's less than 10% if you're fortunate enough to be an American living today. Thanks to mechanization, the invention of machines that this gentleman, George Bryan, mentioned. Thanks to the specialization in careers, so we all don't have to have the same one job of getting food. Thanks to the world getting smaller and faster through technology. And thanks to the march of economic freedom in the world. That's enabled all of this, but that doesn't mean these changes were easy.
5: The paternal side of our family came from Ireland and into North Carolina down through Georgia and into Alabama in the early 1800s. My grandfather, he came up here in 1890 and worked in the grocery business and then he started a meat market here in 1908, a meat market. and he and his wife had five sons. My father was one of them. He worked in the meat market. But the meat market closed in 34 and my grandfather passed away. Only two of them, my father and uncle, they were out selling cattle and shipping them to Memphis and they weren't making any money. They would buy two or three cattle and load them up and take them all the way up to Memphis, you know, on no, no telling what kind of roads and when they got up and got back my dad said we lost money you know and so that's when they decided in probably late 35 to start the meat company here a pork processing company called brian foods it was a fairly complicated business because there was so many moving parts you know we were sort of a disassembly line i used to say you know cars assemble cars we disassemble the pork when you're taking a a hog you slaughter the hog and then you chill it and then you disassemble it and you get the different parts and you either sell them fresh or you further process them or you make hot dogs out of certain you know a hot dogs a good made product I mean people say well I don't know what's in a hot dog well an all-beef hot dog or a beef and pork hot dog and beef pork chicken is a good hot dog it's great it's got a lot of protein you know you got bacon and hams and uh, I still eat a lot of ham today. I love ham. It's my favorite meat protein. I eat it every day. I don't eat bacon every day. I like bacon, but I like ham better. It's just a little leaner. But they used to say in the meat industry we use everything but the squeal. You know, we try to figure out how to use the squeal. But we did. We We had to and, you know, use the feet and the ears and the the ears, you could make different products out of. They make dog, you know, they dry them and make dog treats out of them. And the feet, they pickled the feet and beat the meat out of the... So there, there was something to do with all parts of the animal. We made most every product that could be made and then we did a lot of canning. We canned a lot for the Army in the 40s during World War II. We made stews and chilies and tamales and sausages. and When we became federal inspected, we could ship across state lines. We were the first federal inspected meat plant in Mississippi. And so we started shipping to Alabama and Tennessee and different states. We used to ship a lot of sausage overseas to school lunch programs in Puerto Rico. That was a big deal when we got an order to, to make big number 10 can for the school lunch program in Puerto Rico. I mean, that was a big deal. We People liked it because a lot of people got to work some overtime, you know, making making all that product. So It was a fascinating business to learn where all that went. And I can remember, you know, after three or four years, I woke up one morning and said, I, I got it. I know where it all goes and I know what it's all worth. And I didn't have to think about it anymore. I had learned it I worked here as a kid, you know, putting the keys in an envelope when you open the Vienna cans. We were the largest Vienna sausage makers in the country. Throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, we made a lot of Vienna sausage here. Vienna sausage is just a certain kind of sausage that goes in a can. It's the small cans, four-ounce cans. It has I think it's seven links in it. It's packed in water, and you eat it with crackers and cheese, and it was sort of a staple item in those days, you know. And then, in the early days, there was a, a key that you had to unlock the top of the can, and so we had to put keys in the boxes so people could unlock the can. They didn't have the pull top in the early years, so we had to count so many keys in an envelope. When I was ten or twelve years old, that was my first job. My cousin and I, we did it, and. Uh, I think it was 24 cans per case, so we had to try to get 24 or 5 keys in there. And occasionally we'd get a letter and say, was only 22 keys in the." I'd blame it on my cousin, you know. I said, I know I can count. <laughs> and, you know, you kind of learn the business from the ground up. I always believed in that. Anybody starting out in business, and I tell our grandchildren, you know, learn everything you can about the business, what it is, what makes it go, I and mean, then how can you add value to that business? People don't want you if you can't add value. You know, you can go go to work and say, I'm working at so-and-so, but if you're not adding value and improving the business performance, they don't really need you there. I used to tell our people that, you know, we had a lot of people come to work every day when I was here at Bryan and we had eighteen hundred people here in that plant and they all can and I said everybody that comes in that gate every day, they want to do a good job. You gotta think they wanna do a good job. Now some don't. Some are there, and how does everybody doesn't love their job. I mean, unfortunately, and I tell our grandchildren, try to find something you like, but whatever you do, do the best you can and try to improve every day. You go to work and you try to make some contribution that improves that business and improves your life and other people around you. So I've kind of always had that attitude, if I'm going to get up in the morning and go somewhere and do something, try to do it better, you know. And my brother became president here. And I started working full time in 65 or six at the plant. I started out in manufacturing, and I worked in all different departments, learning the manufacturing part of the business. And then we merged in 68 with Sarah Lee. And we didn't really have titles until we merged and then they gave us a title. I was production manager and I did that for probably six years. And then I got into sales and marketing in the early seventies. And, and then in 74, my brother left to go to Chicago. They called and asked him if he would come run the business. And he was my mentor. He was a brilliant, still is a brilliant businessman. He asked me to take over the plant here and be president. I told him I didn't want to do it. I said, I'm not old enough. I'm not experienced enough. It was about 29, 28 or 29. I actually tried to get him to promote somebody else to the job. I said, promote him and I will work with him. He said, no.
4: How often do you hear that one? Someone rejecting power when offered it.
5: Well, we grew up in a small town, and it's a lot different when you you know you don't you have humility. You you know it's just something that my mother taught us and my father. You know that that you you need humility to to get along with people and work with people. So we never we never thought we would indifferent any anybody else. You just don't do that. And
2: when we come back, more of the story of George Bryan, his life story. And again, we tell every kind of business story here on this show. We've told Fred Smiths, the chairman and founder of FedEx, Bernie Marcus's, the founder of Home Depot, Henry Ford, and so many others. When we come back, George Bryan's story here on Our American Stories.
1: To hear more stories like this, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter, where we'll send you our best stories every week.
2: Our American Stories, and we return to George Bryan's story. His family's pork business, Bryan Foods, had just merged with Sarah Lee, and when his brother John was asked to run the whole business, John wanted 29-year-old George to run Bryan Foods. George told him
5: no. And he said, well, you go home and think about it. And he kind of forced me to do it. Of course, after a while, I liked it, but I didn't like it the first year or two because I was trying to learn so much. And He wrote me a letter about how to run the business. And it was a classic letter of to your brother of what to do and what not to do. And I I still read it today, you know. And and so I based my business philosophy off that letter and I don't know whether anybody asked him to do it I think he was probably afraid because you know he was running the overall business so he didn't want Brian Foods to to fail <laughs> so he did it, you know for that he, and he probably had more confidence in me than I did but if you kind of followed his letter it was kind of hard to fail you know if you really stayed on what he said about you know how to treat people how to Work on cost, how to run scared. It was kind of like, you know, run run like something may happen. You know, run like there's somebody chasing you. But he, uh, he was my mentor growing up. And George wasn't the only person that John meant something to. You know, we went through a lot of interesting times in Mississippi in the 60s and during the civil rights era. And... My brother was a strong proponent of helping and move civil rights along. They closed the swimming pool here during integration and filled it in and made it a park. And then he raised the money and went up and built another pool for everybody to swim in.
4: The school district also resisted integration. The Supreme Court ordered it in 1954, but many towns like West Point refused to well into the 60s. In fact, their commitment to segregation was so fierce that they rather would have shut down all public schools than to integrate them. And so, that's what they did. Thankfully, this businessman, John H. Bryan, was equally committed to his position. In the absence of open public schools, he refused to send his kids to all-white private schools and instead joined the black community in suing the school board. When the previously black elementary schools eventually reopened, his two children were among its students. Because of a lot of forces, including this racism, the diminished opportunities it led to, and also the increasing mechanization of farming that eliminated work, Six million black Americans left the South and went up north, especially to cities like Chicago in what's become known as the Great Migration.
5: I have a friend who lives in Chicago. His name is Charles Watkins, and he works at the University Club up there. He's a maitre d'. And I didn't know Charles, but I was up there having dinner there with a little reunion. And somebody told me about him and said he was from West Point. And that he had written a book. And I got the book. And he talked about the migration in the 40s and the 50s. And he said one thing that that Brian Foods did, he said it kept a lot of people at home from migrating to the north. And we did. We had in those days four, five, six hundred African Americans working here, and they had good jobs, and they didn't go to Chicago. One of
4: the geniuses of America is its competition among cities among regions and among companies that forces all of them to become better and serve its customers, us,
5: better. I think looking at competition, seeing what they were doing, learning from that, I think there was a little bit of uh, we don't measure up to the big boys, but someday we want to. You know, we want to strive to get better, and we want to be known, and we want to be able to walk in a room with Oscar Mayer, and they know who we are. You know, and that, and some of that drives you. You know, sometimes you just outwork people. You just have a dedication to a lot of sacrifices made, sometimes to growing businesses and working on them. We were working Saturdays. I always worked on a daily list. My brother taught me that. I used to go in fairly early and write a list of things I had to do that day. And I'd maybe limit it to 15 or 20, but what do I need to do best today to contribute to the business? What needs to be done? What I I can't put off, you know? And I always felt better when I went home. At night, and had 90% of them done. Not that you could get them all done every day, but you had to have a plan, you know? I didn't like it when I left two or three on the list after the day. I've always told our children, I said, you can't let time rule you, you gotta rule time. And too many people just get up in the morning and let things happen.
4: Under George's intentional leadership of Brian Foods, a lot of intended things happened.
5: It wasn't a large business then, I mean it was maybe a $75 million business and and then we grew it to about a $400 million business and then it continued to grow after I went to work for Sarah Lee in 82.
4: As the CEO of all of their food companies and opened his headquarters in Memphis.
5: And then I worked 20 years for the corporate and traveled all over the world buying companies merging. We bought Jimmy Dean Sausage, Hillshire Farm Ballpark. We had a portfolio of meat companies and we had about 26 plants in the U.S. and we had 26 in Europe and we had four in Mexico. We built our business over years. You know, we gradually built it and when we would increase sales and increase profits, we'd put that money into marketing and advertising and just kept building. We started off with a small budget and built it into a larger budget. And then I retired in 2002, as my brother did. We didn't really know we were each going to leave, but he left and I left, because I'd been in it 38 years working in, in that meat business. Four years later, with the Bryan brothers no
4: longer in the business, Sarah Lee decided to shut down Brian Foods' processing plant in their hometown of West Point, Mississippi, with
5: its 1,600 jobs was the toughest thing we've ever been through and of course we weren't living here we were in memphis and uh we started hearing wind of it and people told me they said they're doing things down here and it looks like they may close the plant and so the mayor was my brother-in-law and i called him and i said y'all need to you know i don't know the people running sarah lee anymore my brother didn't know them that it had changed and we didn't know them, and, and I said, I didn't understand. I said, why can't they keep some of the plant open and keep it going because it's gonna be devastating to the West Point world, and with that many people here and their families and generations of their families had depended on this plant for a living, and they just whack it off. I didn't understand it, and so we, we met with them and tried to buy the plant. Even though George and John were retired, they cared for their
4: former employees and hometown so much that they felt compelled to try to keep it alive.
5: Most businesses think a lot more of the people that work for them than you give us credit for. And, and I don't like that. I don't like thinking that everybody's a. if you're a capitalist there's something wrong. That's not right. And there's. A lot more stories the other way of what businesses do. And businesses don't run without good employees. They don't run without good employee relations. There's some bad stories, too. I mean, I know that. But you can't take the bad stories and make them all stories.
2: And you don't hear that story much in the media, folks. A retired CEO concerned about the closing of a plant in his old hometown. And that, of course, is West Point, Mississippi. When we come back, We'll find out what happened to that plant and what happened to that town. George Bryan's story, West Point, Mississippi's story, here on Our American Stories. Return to the final portion of this remarkable story of the Bryan family. George Bryan is retired from Sara Lee when the company tries to shut down the processing plant his family had built in their hometown of West Point, Mississippi.
5: What they were going to do is just close it and then sell it to some liquidator. And I called the then chairman of Sara Lee and I, I told her, I said. We'll entertain buying it, but we've got to have the brand. We can't buy the plant with no brand. And then how are we going to pay the severance if the plant has to close? If it starts losing a lot of money because the market changes on us, hog market goes way up, you know, you go through those cycles. And, and if we didn't have a brand to protect us during that, if everything we sold was a commodity, we couldn't get through it. And I told them that, and finally we met with them. and they wouldn't consider the brand, they just wouldn't consider it, and they wouldn't pay the severance if we had to close it. So it was just too much risk, and it hurt bad. But we just had to back off. I called these friends that were helping, and I said, we just can't do it. I said, as much as I want to do it, I don't want to do something stupid And if we buy it and have to close it in two years, that's worse than, and they don't have severance, because we can't pay it. The employees got nothing. At least they got some severance, they got some unemployment, whatever they got, it wasn't enough. Believe me, it wasn't enough for what they had done, you know, to to grow the business and help. They went ahead and closed it and sold it to a liquidator. And the liquidator started working on it, and he worked on it, worked on it, and it's, it's still a ragged mess down there. It's been uh, 11 years. They still hadn't gotten the site cleaned up. Unemployment hit, what, 18% in, in the worst of times. It hurt everybody. It hurt uh, the family. It hurt my brother a lot. And he didn't, he wouldn't come down here and go by the plant. And I wouldn't go by there. I would go the back way. I wouldn't go by the plant. And I finally got to where I could drive by there and not get sick, you know, looking at it. See it. See it shut down and see it from what it had, you know, 75 years ago. And that, that didn't feel good. And then my my cousin bought it, and has turned it into a mission. And he's a minister in Starkville and a good man. And he he turned it into a mission, and he's trying to do things down there to help people and rehab and AA and have uh, meetings and you know turn the old office building. And he's got a master plan he's working on. It takes money and time, but. I think it's probably the best thing for it, you know, and we all support him in it. Uh, He's gradually working on it as he can, and he's turned it into a mission of hope for local people in the area.
4: George has spent a lot of his life on Mississippi's economic development. In 1988, he built a semi-private golf club in West Point called Old Waverly. And it's been named one of the top 100 golf courses in the country and the best one in Mississippi. And in 2016, he opened a public course across the street called Mossy Oak. And it's already been named one of the top 100 modern courses in the country.
5: I mean, we've got a lot of property owners here we pay a lot of taxes and we employ people we have 130 40 people working here and and i feel a responsibility to those people we help try to develop businesses that members here you know we do that we have caddies at mossy oak i was a caddy from about ages 12 to 18
4: and that's our image of most caddies, and George certainly has those too, but he's got a couple of a different breed.
5: We have uh, two or three or four that have come in from other parts of the country and settled in here to, because they like the area and they like Mossy Oak. A guy named Mike Troublefield who came in from New Jersey, he's been out on the tour a long time and Mike's been working here two years and he's caddied a lot on the LPGA. And he comes in and works. When he gets a little slow, he'll go out and caddy and come back. But these caddies are unusual guys. You know, they're kind of nomads. They like to go and kind of be their own boss. And one in particular who uh, came in here was a guy named Jack Lightfoot. Jack was out on the tour for 20 or 25 years. He's in his 60s. He came in here and fell in love and stayed here. He didn't have a car, so he walked back and forth to town every day. It's okay to somebody pick him up. Well, he got cancer about two years ago in his leg. And we helped him get it fixed and all, and he kept catting, and all of a sudden he got another form of cancer. But sad story, he passed away earlier in the year, and he told me, he said, I, I went to see him when he was in hospice, and I said, Jack, is there anything I can do for you? And he said, I just want to be out there at Mossy Oak where I can see everybody. So we... uh built a little monument to him on the in the middle of the golf course which where he can see everything out there you can stand in the center and see the whole golf course it's up elevated and we have a marker out there jack lightfoot caddy and he said this is my home but he'll be remembered forever here we did a dedication to him and um He's a guy I'll never forget because uh, he he came here and liked it. He didn't have any family. He had uh, uh, Melissa, my assistant, worked with him and made all the funeral arrangements. And he had some cash and his pocket he had a lot of cash in his pocket. He didn't have a bank account. Put it in the bank and and Jack said, you know, after you deal with my funeral arrangements than uh, put it in a caddy fund, you know. And that's what she did. George's approach to golf shows
4: that golf can be about much more than a game.
5: Our two teachers here are two strong Christian men. And I always say, I said, they teach a lot more than golf. They teach patience, character, you know, just every kind of virtue you can think and, and you can see it in the kids I mean you don't see many kids jerk kids today that are good golfers I mean they just don't they've got to have patience and knowledge and it's it's, it's a great game for that and it it teaches you a lot about life you know that's why I, I enjoy seeing these kids in the program because I know they're getting more than just learning how to hit a golf ball some of them are going to go on and Take golf further, play college, you know, and do that. But some are just going to become businessmen and and teachers and educators. And but they learn a lot. They learn a lot in it. I mean, that's that's what enthuses me about it. I mean, I've been fortunate to have a really good family. You know, I grew up in a good family, and people. My brother always used to say, you know. I had good parents, you know, you have good parents and, and you try to be a good parent and uh, you try to raise your kids and grandkids to, to be good in society and and perform and uh, still have a lot to do, you know, there's still a lot of time to correct any of the deficiencies you had or have and I enjoyed doing that. I, I probably wish I had more time to spend with the family. and doing things, not quite so much time in the business, you know. Uh, but I've been involved in business so long it's kinda hard, hard just to walk away and say, I'm gonna go home and I'm going to the beach. You know, my wife and I don't like to go to the beach and lay around, we, we're we not those kind of people. Not that I don't like going to the beach because I like being on the water, going to anything, but we like, uh, we say we don't like it sometimes. She says, are we going to do this the rest of our life? And I said, I don't know. You know, what are we going to do?
2: <laughs> and what a voice and what a matter-of-factness about him and so many men of his generation. My dad, the idea of retirement was just like, what? What am I going to do? I'm going to just do nothing? And the work was their lives, and work is good. And so many young people, and actually so many middle-aged people, don't know that work is a virtue, hard work is a virtue, earning value to a company, to a community is a virtue. And boy, the pain of this guy listening and hearing about the plant that his family built to close, you could hear the pain still. Not even wanting to drive by it. The loss and all that pain to all those families. And by the way, that's how vital business is to communities and why we have to defend them. Our American Dreamer segment, as always, brought to us by the folks at Job Creators Network. George Bryan's story, Bryan Food's story. And a sad part of West Point, Mississippi's story. Good news about West Point. They've had some tremendous economic development teams there. The jobs are back. The economy's humming. This is Lee Habib. All of these stories here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about music here on this show because everybody loves music, and one of our favorite recurring features on this show is the story of a song, and we've done some really good ones, folks. Riders on the Storm, Give Me Shelter, you're going to hear about how some vocal tracks got recorded on that song, and you will realize some things that you never really knew before about why that song's great. House of the Rising Sun, my goodness, Jesse did just a great job on that one. Another brick in the wall, you hear how that song got made, and one change in the studio that made that song, the hit song, it became all of it on ouramericannetwork.org. You can go and click the Topics button, and there it'll be, Story of a Song. And by the way, sign up for our newsletter while you're on ouramericannetwork.org. We'll send you our five best stories once a week, every week. And now it's time for our story of the song for today, and our own Hillsdale intern, Monty Montgomery, who is a freak I've never seen somebody know so much about, so much about music than a young man named Monty. And here he is with the story of R.E.M.'s song, What's the Frequency, Kenneth?
6: As far as most people know, or are concerned, R.E.M.'s 1994 hit song, What's the Frequency, Kenneth, off their album Monster, is just another alternative rock throwback of a time gone by. But for some of the more inquisitive-minded or Wikipedia-obsessed R.E.M. fans, this question might have popped into your head at some point in time. Who exactly is Kenneth? Dateline, Dharan, Saudi Arabia. A car-truck bomb has
0: exploded in an area where 2,000 U.S. servicemen and their families live. 160 casualties among them, an estimated at least
7: two to four dead. This is the CBS Evening News with Dan Rather reporting from CBS News headquarters in New York.
6: As it turns out, Former CBS News anchor Dan Rather has a lot to do with the song. It was a dark and mild night in New York City, October 6, 1986, that Dan Rather found himself walking along 88th Street in the Upper East Side. Rather had been visiting David Buxbaum, his friend and vice president of news at CBS for dinner. And the last thing on his mind at 10.42 was the possibility of getting beaten up. But at 10.43, that became the first thing on his mind. As a man dressed up in a black suit, white shirt, and black tie, well dressed according to Rather, asked him a particular question. Right after the question was posed, an unsuspecting Rather was reported to have said, you've got the wrong guy. But this didn't phase the man at all, and Dan Rather was promptly punched underneath the jaw. Rather, in pain, was then chased to an apartment complex, where the man continued to beat and kick him and continued to ask the famous question What's the frequency, Kenneth?
8: Fast forward to 1993.
6: World famous rock band REM is in the process of writing material for their upcoming album Monster, a release that would find Dan Rather's unfortunate assault as the centerpiece for the lead single. Here's Michael Stipe and Dan Rather discussing the famous song. Let's talk about what's the frequency, Kenneth. <laughs>
9: <laughs> let's talk about that then.
5: And on the record, from the album Monster, obviously something that resonates with me, and I remember the time very well. But let's go back to that time. What You were doing the album, Monster. When and how did the idea of doing something on what's the frequency Kenneth?" come to you? Or whom did it come to? It
10: came to me. Uh, I was writing a song about a, a, a generational gap and a character who's desperately trying to understand a, a younger generation's perspective and failing miserably at it. And the, the phrase, Kenneth, what's the frequency or what's the frequency, Kenneth, is, I, I think I turned it um, represents inscrutability. It's, it's, it's the big question. <laughs> no one knew what it meant. It, it represented uh, trying and trying and trying, but not arriving at any answer.
6: And the NYPD, despite trying and trying and trying, also came up with no answer as to who beat up Dan Rather until 1997, when William Tagger was arrested for the death of an NBC stagehand. Tager believed that TV news was beaming unknown frequencies into his mind, causing his life to fall apart, which was the reason why he attacked one of TV's most well-known news reporters, running into him on the street out of sheer coincidence. Dan rather maintains his sense of humor about his assault though.
10: And you were such a great sport about the whole thing. I remember you coming to soundcheck and us performing the song together.
5: <laughs> well, that's that is still one of my more embarrassing moments because, as you know, I can't sing at all. We figured that out in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't, didn't take long. You did great. I still enjoyed it very much.
6: <laughs> and if you've ever wanted to hear Dan Rather sing, here's a sound check he did with R.E.M.,
2: What a story. Uh, You know, Dan Rather's lucky. This guy, a little further down the road, would have planned to kill Dan Rather. Uh, What a nut, and what a story, and what a way to turn something crazy into something beautiful. Great song, great record, great artists that R.E.M. were and are, and a great work by Monty, our Hillsdale intern, and Hillsdale College is the proud sponsor of all of our This Days and histories. And we're lucky to have him and all the folks from Hillsdale and their support. And by the way, if you love what we do, sign up for our newsletter. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and we'll send you, if you sign up, five of our best stories each week. They'll be transcribed, they'll be in audio form every week. We promise you our five best. This is Lee Habib, the story of a song, What's the Frequency, Kenneth, here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, and we tell stories of every kind here, and we love hitting the road and visiting cities across America. We're going to do reports from cities big and small regularly here. And by the way, if you've got a story about your city and your town, well, drop us a note at ouramericannetwork.org. We'll get there if the story is interesting enough. And my goodness, I'm sure that you've got an interesting story about almost every place you live in this great country. Well, today is the story of a city called New Orleans. And it has over 10 million visitors per year, with a local population hovering around 400,000. Our producer, Jesse Edwards, hit the streets. What
10: can be said about a city that people can't stop talking about? The birthplace of jazz. Jazz. Louis Armstrong Territory,
7: Satchmo. I was born, uh, you know, 1900, and uh, in James Alley, they call it. That's the uh, back of town. That's the, the rear of New Orleans.
10: People of every race, color, religion, gender, age, language, and class call it home. Truly, the great American melting pot. Every kind of food, every kind of booze. Music pours into the air from every street corner. The sweet morning breeze collides with the sweltering humidity of the mid-morning sun, followed by a long, slow burn that stays lit well into the early morning hours and beyond sunrise again. The Big Easy. The Crescent City. The House of the Rising Sun. We're staying at the Maison Dupuis Hotel in the French Quarter just two blocks from Bourbon Street. With its wide open courtyard and pool, full bar and cafe, Old World Charm comes with rooms that start around 130 bucks a night. With a little imagination, it's very easy to convince yourself that you're somewhere in Europe. If you're into that sort of thing. There's a vintage 1969 Montgomery g elevator in the lobby here for no extra charge. You don't want to get stuck in this aging beauty, though. About half the size of a normal elevator, you feel the box knocking around the walls as it takes you to your floor. And it's slower than one might think of a modern elevator, heavy with marble tile and worn brass. A long weekend here won't break the bank, and there's always something to look at. Galatoise dates back to 1905 with a business casual dress code for lunch, no shorts or t-shirts allowed. Most of the waiters are longtime employees who are local to South
11: Louisiana. My name is John Fontenot, I'm from the Bayou, I've been here at Galatois since 1967, and I left a couple of times to go back to college, to try to finish college, but I'm still here because I like people, and whether they like me or not, I still like them, you know. I tell them a few jokes here and there, things like that, but I finished school, but I still rather be a waiter, because I, I like to talk to people, you know? And I try to talk to myself, but it don't work. And, you gotta, and I spoke French before English, born and raised here, so that's why I got an accent. I try, you know, sometimes you get tired of talking, and the accent comes worse, it gets worse.
10: John's been working here as a waiter for over 50 years. And you can hear how much he enjoys it in his voice.
11: Galatois is, uh, to describe Galatoire, it's like an oasis. I call it an oasis. They gotta come here, they gotta eat, especially Friday. They come every day, but Friday's like they, they, they fight to get in here. And I don't know, you know, other than that, it's, they all meet each other. It's a local restaurant. So they all meet each other and they all have a good time. It's like, uh, like going to kind of like, um, like going to church, you meet all your friends, and it's uh, <laughs> I guess that's about the best description I, I got. And they, they don't drink too much, they drink a little bit, they eat good, the food is great, and uh, it's always consistent. We have fresh, if we don't have it, it's because it's not fresh. Like soft shell crab, still playing the piano. That's the only time we eat it, we love crabbing on top, and a little touch of mania, you know, things like that. What makes Galatoire so good? It's not just the food, but it's the local people. Man, we got a lot of local people come here. If it wouldn't be for local people, we'd have to close up. The pe- local people love us. And oh, now we like the tourists too and all that, but the local people like, I very seldom wait on tourists. i yeah. I'm mostly uh, local people I wait on. Some of them I don't recognize because they, they grow up so quick, yeah. but they know me. You know, because I wait on their dad, their grandpa. Grandma, it kinda makes you feel good. Yeah. I feel like I'm related to them, you know? It's hard to describe that, but once you get a relation with them, they come in, I know what just about what they're gonna eat. Now, that's pretty good. Will you remember what they're gonna eat? What, shrimp remoulade or crab meat maison? Or better yet, half and half, a little shrimp and little crab meat. You know, that kind of appetizer. And I bring them a little bread. And then for the main course, red fish, I tell them all the time, red fish, lemon fish, drum, papano, that's all fish, saute with crab meat. Papano, you usually grill it, but is, uh a special fish. It's a little different from the others, because the others are more mild fish, but uh, you gotta remember these things when you, it's like wine, I try to remember the wine, and it's a little harder. But for the fish and all that, I remember all of that, you know?
10: After working at Galatois for so long, John's seen a lot of waiters come and go over the years. Either you got it, or you ain't.
11: The waiters at Galatois, they have to be pretty good to be a way to I think. I would think so. Because the way that the Galatois are kind of like, uh, you, gotta, you gotta be attentive to the customers. You just can't say, give them a hamburger and say, well, we don't serve hamburger here, but I'm just saying, give them a hamburger, eat, that's it. No, no, over here, you gotta keep keep track of them. Keep that table kind of, you know, keep it as clean as you can as you go. Ice and water, they won't wine. They might not want wine now. They'll, 10 minutes, five minutes later after you walk, yeah, send them over, yeah, I need a bottle of wine. You know, that kind of, you gotta be attentive to them all the time. I, I like to explain it to them better yet. You know, like, crabmeat meat au in the cream cheese sauce, you know. Stuffed egg black, like, shrimp baked, you know. Kinda like, kinda, you just don't, I, I like what I do, it's my job, and I make it like, I'm glad you came. Cause if you wouldn't come, I wouldn't be out, I'd be out of work, you know. So I'm always thanking them for coming, you know. That kind of thing. And before I came here, they didn't have ice machine. We had to use the ice. We used to have nine, 900 pounds of ice delivered to us every day.
10: Louisiana is the only place in the United States, other than a small strip of our border with Canada, where French or French Creole is spoken as a first language, 6 to 10 percent of the population. They speak French here because in 1682, a French explorer claimed Louisiana for France. Eighty years later, France gave Louisiana to Spain. For 40 years, New Orleans was a Spanish city. It burned to the ground twice and was rebuilt before it was ever considered American. In 1803, France takes back possession and sells it to the United States just 20 days later in the Louisiana Purchase.
0: Three years after the 19th century began, the Louisiana Delta, a large swampy wilderness abounding in game, was purchased by the United States from France. At first, the Americans sought only the Delta area to allow a free exit from the Mississippi Valley through the Port of New Orleans. But the purchase was enlarged to include a vast fertile land reaching from the Gulf of Mexico to the Canadian border as far west as the Rockies, over a million square miles for the price of only $15 million, about four cents an acre. It was the foresight of men like the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, who saw in this great territory the future of America.
7: And on the shores of these great lakes, inland commerce from the North Atlantic to the Gulf.
10: Less than a decade later, in the War of 1812, the United States took on the greatest naval power in the world at the time, Great Britain, in a conflict that would have an immense impact on our young country's future. The final battle of that war was fought here, in the Battle of New Orleans. Then Colonel Andrew Jackson led a coalition of pirates, free blacks, and Tennessee volunteers to defeat a British force outside the city.
0: In 1814, we took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down to mighty Mississippi. Took a little bacon and we took a little beans. Fought the bloody British in the town of New Orleans. We fired our guns and the British kept a comin'. Wouldn't as many as it was a while ago. We fired once more and they began to runnin' down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Well, we looked down the river and we seen the British come, and it must have been a hundred of them beating on the drum. Stepped so high and they began to sing. We stood beside the cotton bales and didn't say a thing. We fired our guns and the British kept a coming, but there would not as many as it was a while ago. Fired once more and they began to run and on down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. When we
10: returned, the story of New Orleans continued yeah, on our and they ran American
0: through the stories. Couldn't go. They run so fast that the hounds couldn't catch them down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Well, we fired our cannon till the barrel melted down Then we grabbed an alligator and we fought another round Filled his head with cannonball and powdered his behind And when we touched the powder off, the gator lost his mind We fired our guns and the British kept a-coming would not as many as it was a while ago Fired once more and they began to run it. Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico yeah, they ran through the briars and they ran through the brambles, and they fired through the places, through the rabbit, couldn't go. Oh.
2: This is Our American Stories, and we return to the city of New Orleans, and a side note here, it's my favorite American city. My wife and I go there regularly. We broadcast here in Oxford, Mississippi, uh, not very far drive away. Uh, Moreover, we were married there. That's how much we love the city. Got married there and loved to go and eat there and listen to music there. Now let's return to Jesse and more of the story.
10: The population of the city doubled in the 1830s with an influx of settlers. By 1840, New Orleans had become the wealthiest and third most populous city in the nation. 102,000. Early in the Civil War, New Orleans was captured by the Union without a battle in the city itself. It was spared the destruction suffered by many other cities in the south. There are a lot of drunk people here in New Orleans. Just be cool, man. But there's one place in town that doesn't serve any drinks, or food for that matter. It's called Preservation Hall. Not only are food and drinks prohibited, but there's no bathrooms anywhere. You're planning on seeing the show after pregame drinks. Be ready to hold it in for at least an hour, standing in line if you want good seats, and another hour for the show itself. Oh, and I forgot to mention, there's no air conditioning either. If you know how hot and humid it gets in New Orleans during the summer, prepare yourself. This place gets loud, and it gets hot, and it gets packed in tight. Shows are at 5, 6, 8, 9, and 10 p.m. General admission is cash-only, $20 seven nights a week. Unless you want to pay extra for big-shot seating, that gives you the best spot in the house and allows you to skip the line for $35 to $50. Bucks. This place was established in 1961 to preserve, perpetuate, and protect traditional New Orleans Jack. This small, intimate room feels like the main vessel from God himself to the south. The band starts playing. Operating as a music venue, a touring band, a record label, and a nonprofit organization, Preservation Hall continues their mission as a cornerstone of New Orleans music and culture.
4: I'm Ben Jaffe, and I'm uh, the bass player, the upright bass, and the tuba player with the band.
10: Ben Jaffe also runs this place. His parents were founding members.
4: I, I look to, to the early jazz pioneers that are re- like responsible for this music. People like you know Jelly Roll Morton and Louis Armstrong and. Freddie Keppard, these musicians that uh, were creating something new at that time, a part of the tradition that we're a part of and come come out of, and the responsibility we have to keep that tradition alive and relevant and new while still having, you know, a foot in the past and, you know, kind of looking towards the, the future.
10: Since its opening day in 1961, millions of people have walked through this hall, including presidents, prime ministers, movie stars, and rock idols. Paul Newman and Steve McQueen have filmed scenes at the hall. Tom Waits called it sacred, hallowed ground. Louis Armstrong himself said of Preservation Hall, that's where you'll find all the greats. We so often hear him sing. Let's listen to the master from New Orleans speak. I played in a symphony orchestra
7: in 1925 for silent pictures. And we played everything you hear these big orchestras playing. Right there on... In, in the Vendum Theater in Chicago, and we change programs twice a week with movies, and we play our overture, then we go into the jazz, quite nicely as how I got in there, but still in all at the experience I had by being there, waiting for myself to come in with the jazz chorus or whatever it is, but we play an overture first, and that's the experience, right? William Tell was nothing after I was there two weeks. Understand? Because I was interested in my horn and everything went with it. And uh, it wasn't much different, the divisions of the, the measures and all that that we did in the funeral marches, three, four time, four, four time, 12, eight times, who's said? So everything's been done before, nothing new. But I listen to the best of music, which is just plain music. The worst thing the public, and especially musicians, they're ruin music. Musicians trying to play for them. So they can say, man, you out of this world and they ain't even paid for to get in the damn concert or the hall. If you have gone and please them people that appreciate like wonderful world, that's just a tame uh, tune to it your hip if you're called a hip musician and ask him to play it he don't have the tone to play still in all of you don't blow your brains out that's what ruined a lot of musicians through the years really and ruined music trying to please the other musician that he can't play nothing himself you bet your life I like lost my lip trying to please these cats standing there with their arms full mm-hmm. what what can you play There's 10 billion trumpet players. Name one that you think's a creator. And if you name one, I'll kiss your pocketbook.
10: (laughs) Jazz and New Orleans go hand in hand. People love it down here. One infamous citizen of the city liked jazz a little too much. He's known as the Axeman of New Orleans, As the killer's name implies, the victims were usually attacked with an axe. He killed six and injured twelve, but the Axeman was never caught or identified. His crime spree stopped as mysteriously as it had started. On March 13th of 1919, a letter from the Axeman was published in newspapers saying that he would kill again, but would spare the occupants of any place where a jazz band was playing.
8: Now. To be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, of course, on Tuesday next, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have mentioned. (laughs) If everyone has a jazz band going, well, so much the better, for your people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it up on Tuesday night. If there be any, will get my axe. That night, all of New
10: Orleans dance halls were filled to capacity with jazz parties at hundreds of houses around town. The horror then came to an abrupt end, and no one would ever learn the identity of the Axeman. The story of New Orleans continues when we return here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at OurAmericanNetwork.org.
7: If you ever get down to all this way, you might steer clear on St. Joseph's Day. The graveyard bones make a rattling sound. The dead get up and start walking around. You might not believe me, but I'll tell you it's true. And you would too. If it happens to you, I spent the night on the graveyard there. And what I
2: saw gave me a terrible scare. Riding bone, riding bone. This is Our American Stories, and we conclude with our adventure into the deep streets of New Orleans with our producer, Jesse. The last 48 hours in this town have been
10: a whimsical blur, mostly thanks to the frozen margaritas on every street corner and staying up to 4 a.m. listening to world-class jazz. One of the more popular bars in the French Quarter is Pat O'Brien. During Prohibition, it was known as Mr. O'Brien's, and the password, Storms Bruin, was required to gain entrance to the establishment. It began operation as a legal liquor joint in December of 1933, and it's where the cocktail known as the Hurricane was born. Charlie Bateman is VP of Operations at O'Brien's.
12: Well, the Hurricane was created mainly because there was a shortage of liquor, you know, uh, and uh, for like every case of scotch you, you had to buy, you had to buy like five cases of rum. And not a lot of people drank rum back in those days. So one well, story short, they, they were stockpiling the rum, they had no idea what to do with it. So one day, they, uh, uh, George Oster sat down with uh, Charlie Cantrell, and they started playing around with a different drink. A uh, liquor salesman had to bring in some what they call red passion fruit mix. So, and they created the, this drink, it was a red drink with red passion fruit mix. The next thing was, is, you know, how do we going to promote it? So at first they put it in a small glass, that didn't work out too well. So they had these hurricane lamps that they used to put the, the candles in. And so they put the drink in there, it was a big tall red drink, and they, they gave it, they passed it out to a lot of locals that came in here, and it just snowballed from there. And Whenever the service menus walk in, they all want to know what the drink was, and it's one of the biggest uh, souvenir items of New Orleans. Uh, over the years, we've sold millions and millions of those.
10: While there's more to New Orleans than drinking, it'd be a shame not to introduce you to Chris McMillan. He's a famous New Orleans bartender and co-founder of the Museum of the American Cocktail. This line of work runs in his family. He's a fourth-generation bartender, and in 2016, he opened Revel in Midtown.
9: Uh, I want to say just a couple of things about uh, the preparation of the drink before I get started. Uh, One is the uh, traditional silver cup, uh, metal acts as a conductor glass acts as an insulator so the cooling of a drink is the physics of heat transfer when you have the metal it conducts the heat in the spirit through the metal to the exterior of the glass and causes condensation and actually creates a frost on the exterior of the cup making it colder uh, and therefore the drink more pleasant to more pleasant to drink the second thing is the actual use of mint and you'll see this with the mojito Uh, Also, bartenders believe that by, uh, we've all seen the commercial of the uh, bartender in the room uh, muddling the men in the mojito with the uh, the band playing and the the party going on to the beat of the rhythm of his muddling. And bartenders believe that by showing you uh, their muddling technique, it shows their skill as a bartender. But uh, one of the things that you have to learn about men is that it's very delicate. And it doesn't require that you pulverize it. You can take one leaf and just barely rub it and release the beautiful fragrance and essence of the oil in the leaf. However, if you take an equal leaf and crush it and pulverize it, it will release bitter uh, flavors, uh, which you often see in the mojito. This is chlorophyll in the plant and you release that vegetable matter so you're not trying to crush the mint.
10: Our bartender here then recites a routine of prose as he crafts our cocktail. It's called Ode to the Mint Julep and it was written by Joshua Sol Smith.
9: Then comes the zenith of man's pleasure. Then comes the julep, the mint julep. Who has not tasted one, has lived in vain. The honey of Hymenus brought no such solace to the soul. The nectar of the gods is tame beside it. It is the very dream of drinks, the vision of sweet quaffings. The bourbon and the mint are lovers in the same land they live. And on the same food that they fostered. The mint dips its infant leaf into the same stream that makes the bourbon what it is. The corn grows the level of lands through which the small streams meander. By the brookside, the mint grows. As little wavelets pass, they glide up to kiss the feet of the growing mint. It bends to salute them. Gracious and kind it is, living only for the sake of others. The crushing of it, only makes its sweetness more apparent like a woman's heart and gives its sweetest aroma when bruised. among the first to greet the spring it comes beside the curling brooks that makes music in the pastures it lives and thrives when the bluegrass begins to shoot its gentle sprays towards the sun it comes and its sweetest soul drinks of the crystal brook it is virgin then but soon it must be married to old bourbon His great heart, his warmth of temperament, and that affinity which no one understands demand the wedding. How shall it be? Take from the cold spring some water, pure as angels are, and mix it with sugar till it seems like oil. Then take a glass and crush your mint within it with a spoon. Crush it around the borders of the glass and leave no place untouched. Then throw the mint away. It is a sacrifice. Fill with cracked ice the glass Pour in the quantity of bourbon, which you want. It trickles slowly through the ice. Let it have time to cool. Then pour your sugared water over No spoon is needed, no stirring allowed. Then place sprigs of mint around the brim so that the one who drinks may find a taste and an odor at one draft. When it is made, sip it slowly. August suns are shining. The breath of the south wind is upon you is fragrant, cold and sweet, it is seductive, no maiden's kiss is tender or more refreshing, no maiden's touch can be more passionate, sip it and dream, you cannot dream amiss, sip it and dream, it is a dream itself, no other land gives such sweet solace for your cares, no other liquor soothes you so in melancholy days. Sip it and say, there is no solace for the soul, no tonic for the body, like old bourbon whiskey."
10: Needless to say, I had my fill of bourbon that night. But somehow, I managed to avoid the dreaded hangover. A walk in the early morning sunlight around Jackson Square is a great way to get some pictures of the local architecture without getting a bunch of tourists in the shot, and it's a great chance at some fresh air. It's actually the best time to walk the French Quarter in my opinion. Bourbon Street is quiet, and the only other people out are going to work. Beware. Once you come here, part of you will never leave. As beautiful as she is haunting, and just as salty as she is sweet, this town has an undeniable magnetism that will draw you near forever. Some of it's the history, some the legend, the food, the drinks, that party atmosphere that doesn't quite sound like anywhere else. There's also an indiscernible quality about New Orleans that's perhaps best left to the poets. This is a love poem for New Orleans, written and performed by Nina Erickson.
1: She's a floozy you fall in love with against your better judgment. She's fast and unfaithful, but you just don't care because she's so beautiful and so charming, and when you're in her arms, she talks you into doing things you'd never do anywhere else. You know she's not true, and she doesn't love you, but her voice is jazz, and her blood is zydeco, and when she sings the blues, you give in and hand over to her anything she asks. Her heart's in the quarter, though she gives no quarter herself. She's ruthless, and she'll take you for everything you're worth. In fact, you think nothing of it when she tells you to give her $10 for that $3 drink she just served you in a plastic cup so you can take it with you out into her streets where you trip over the cobblestones as you make your way back to the haunted room you've rented for the week. It must be the voodoo that leaves you so spellbound that you stand transfixed in the square, in front of the cathedral and under the stony gaze of Jackson, wishing you could stay in her wicked arms just a few more nights. No, she's no good for you, but she stole your heart while she emptied your pockets, so you make up your mind, it's no big deal. You'll let the Big Easy keep your money and your good sense and call it a fair trade. Because while your wallet is empty and your pride is laid low, your soul is as full as a steaming cup of coffee served up at 4 a.m. at the Café du Monde, where you sit trying to sober up just enough to remember how to find your way back to that rented room with its ghost of a beautiful dark-skinned girl that gave you such a fright your first few nights in town until you got used to her leaning over your bed. To tuck you in tight each time you lay down.
10: For Our American Stories in New Orleans, I'm Jesse Edwards.